feel like I'm going to like saturate some podcasts for a while and then, then there might be a backlash. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 39th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday, the 6th of October 2013 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we have the second part of our interview with C. Derek Varn. We discuss Derek's new online literary journal, Former People, a journal of bangs and whimpers, the origins of modernism, the influence of Freud, relativity and quantum mechanics, the role of modernism in politics, and of course, a little Marx. Derek also reads a few excerpts from his writings and poetry. The show is shorter than usual, so I'll have the next show out a week earlier than usual. You can help me keep the show going by making a once-off donation or signing up to become a subscriber. Join the conversation as Derek tells us why he chose Former People as the title of his new journal. Former people, you know what former people are? The name of children of aristocrats in the Soviet Union was literally translated into, into English as formal people. For, for me and my co-editor, Stephen, it, it was sort of a sign of a break. We'd both been involved in, in certain kinds of Leninist politics. We are also both children of Eastern Europe. I'm a, a weird part Irish, part Bulgarian and vulgar German Jew. What's the technical description for that, then? Hiberno-Slavic Semite, probably. Excellent. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he's also he's a Polish descent. And so these things mean very different things to our family. You know, our families were on different sides. I mean, you know, my, most of my family had escaped to the States. But his, his, parts of his family are, were on both sides of the Bolshevik crises. So it's a very real thing for us. It's one thing to dispossess the privileged elite. It's another thing to dispossess and destroy their children. And that was sort of the, the sort of dark tone that we were thinking about when we named it Former People. And that was what was in our heads. Because we sort of felt like, and I still sort of feel like, aesthetically, particularly in American literature, I think a lot of what I'm saying now generalizes more to American literature than to Irish or British literature, although, you know, the, the contagion's always there between all those countries. We speak a similar language. So we were thinking about that, and we were wondering, another question was coming into our minds, like, why did it seem like modernism as a literary movement in English sort of devolve into two ways? It became postmodern, which is interesting, but flippant, and kind of refuses to deal in anything entirely seriously in a way. Or it became uh, really reactionary. You know, you can look at the political writings of T.S. Eliot or Ezra Pound or even some people that people think of being super reactionary, like maybe someone like Wallace Stevens, that their politics are much more opaque. And we were thinking on that, and we were trying to figure that out. And we, we started thinking about this idea of neo-modernism. What would it mean to go back to the sort of modernist experimentation and looking at the world and looking at tragedy and stuff seriously, 
but try to do it from new eyes without going down the same sorts of aesthetic or political pitfalls that the modernists fell down. So talk a little bit about modernism and about the movement and what politically it meant. Well, modernism is highly conflicted. I mean, one of the first things former people published was an interview with the uh, professor of poetry, Alf Fielders, at uh, University of Pennsylvania. He talked about how fighting modernism was seen in the United States as fighting communism. But, ironically, most of the modernist writers were politically right-wing. So how did that happen? Gertrude Stein was a fascist sympathizer. Ezra Pound was not just a sympathizer. Wallace Stevens was sort of a Republican. T.S. Eliot was, uh, you know, became a good old Tory. With the exception of some women, most of them sort of abandoned progressive politics in all ways. That was true for the modernist literature. It wasn't true for modernist art. Modernist art was much more pluralized. You had both communist and fascist, essentially, and both of whom were liquidated by their various movements. He was trying to figure that out. Like, why did that go that way? Why did so many modernist writers, even left-wing ones, become stalwart, you know, anti-communist, and some even, like, stalwart anti-liberals? And it was something I really wanted to look into and explore. But also, why was modernism linked to communism so, so strongly? It's, it's a very interesting thing. You have a movement where most of the people that people would think about as the founders and leaders of the movement, people assume they're left-wing, but if you actually look at them, most of them ended up being pretty right-wing. But that initial left-wing impression was still you know, kept, and people... You know, conservatives still have a hostility to modern art. Were the modern artists like Picasso and these, they were not particularly right-wing, were they? No, no, the writers and the artists were very different in that regard. The exception was, of course, like the futurists who, who were very right-wing. But the artists did fare a little better. Although Salvador Dali did have some pretty right-wing sympathies. And even people like André Breton, who were initially communists, they wrote anti-communist literature in the 50s, a lot of them. And so I really wanted to look at that and, and kind of figure out what were they dealing with and why did so many of them take, take a right-wing turn? Why was that right-wing turn not recognized? And what does that say aesthetically? What does that say for the art? Like, what is that art trying to tell us? You know, what are we missing? And then, like, how is that different from postmodernism? Because I also see postmodernism as a very capitalist-friendly, almost reactionary form of art. Not all of it, and I wouldn't say that about all postmodern authors by, by any stretch of the imagination, but the, 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 the tendency to turn things into a joke and to be sort of ironically insincere and narratively misleading, at first it seems like a way to break down aesthetic demarcation lines and you know, ideas about like high art and low art, but it's also weirdly passive. And seems to just, like, it has a very consumerist mentality of, you know, we can take from this and that because we, you know, we're just individuals and it's all a pastiche and it's not really serious anyway. And it's all very branded. And it's hard to tell if postmodernism is a critique of that or an embrace of that. And it's hard to tell where a lot of that actually comes from.
sitting in a Mexican bar, eating a shrimp taco and drinking local beers. I chat with a friend who is also a Marxist in the vague sense of the term. You know the kind of fellow, the one who reads in notes and can speak of the subsumption of labor power, but has not belonged to a union for ages. The last few years have been a blur for me. As an expat teacher working in high schools and universities in Mexico and Korea, since leaving Macon, Georgia in my late 20s, I have moved all over the world and talked to the left in several countries. In Georgia, I had also been trying to make a difference as a good left liberal in a non-unionized educational world that exists in the southern United States. I taught vocational college classes and high school to poor and learning challenge students. I made tests. I visited the poor parts of the city, worked with the local anti-war groups, even though they were mostly libertarians or paleoconservatives. And after three years in an economic recession, I had gotten nowhere. I gave up. And this time, instead of being left, I left. Now that I am teaching here semi-privileged kids in the desert, the sun beating down and the beer cold, I have a confession to make. Despite years of protesting, I woke up and realized that I was a leftist, and I never wanted to be one. I did not even really know exactly what a leftist meant other than a vague distrust of both the conservatism as manifested in the spirit of the 1990s and an even more nebulous distrust of Democrats and military Keynesian liberals. I did not have the vocabulary to articulate this. Not a dirty socialist or a principal left communist but a conference attending, Zizek reading, learning primary source languages to dig into archival documents, signing manifestos after getting a humanities degree, leftist. While advocating socialist principles, I would go through the normal leftist terms, the battle for Seattle, the 2000s anti-war protesting, working in women's shelters in the semi-rural South, which, conversely, led me to carrying a gun at one point. Working with students abroad, and even in the peripherals of being a teacher, a professor, an artist. And this way, I was a cliché. I suppose, like many leftists, I took consolation in never becoming a Democrat and never voting for a Republican. Although, I have been worse. Around 2006 or so, in my mid-20s, after learning it was illegal in my state for graduate students and public school teachers to unionize, and after years of spouting liberal workerist garbage, I got my degree, left university life, felt disillusioned, stopped worrying about the left, became depoliticized, also a stereotype. If you look at the uh, modernist movement, say most of the names that you mentioned are in the West, can we see the shift in the political base also reflected from a Marxist perspective? You know, there was such an anti-communism abounding around that, you know, sometimes artists need a check. Can, can we see the base structure acting at this level? Do you think there's any, anything in that? Yes, I think there's a lot of that. I also think, for example, with a lot of the... Uh, the people became anti-communist, a lot of them were just honest artists. 
like uh, Breton or like Arthur Coaster. They weren't necessarily good people, but they were pretty honest artists. And they experienced things, particularly around the time of the Molotov-Ribbentrop trials and the terror, that really, really turned them against the uh, Soviet Union. But they didn't have any political place to really exist in the United States. And a lot of even liberals who were sympathetic to the Soviet Union for reasons having to do with war ties um, alienated them. And they didn't, like, they, could, they didn't really have any other friends. And the only people who talked to them were like religious conservatives. And I think that has a profound effect on people. And I, I do think it, it really played out historically to move a lot of people who may have be, had stayed sort of left wing in their sympathies over. You know, so I think there's both class issues, like you said, so you, the class basis changes and the money really plays out a part. But I also think that there's like something about honesty um, and dealing with things that you're seeing on the ground and the way people who are more removed from it are not and you being alienated for, for telling the truth. And particularly in America, that was a pretty lonely place to be because, you know, there, there wasn't so many socialists, for example, that if you broke – with the um, Communist Party of the United States, that you really had a home anywhere else. And a lot of liberals didn't trust you for kind of real politic reasons, honestly. And so what do you, what do you have to do? Well, there's no real like anti-Stalinist left in the States. And the only really friends you have now are probably people who are trying to cynically use you as a way to denounce the left and liberals. And, uh, but they're nice to you. I think that actually happened a lot. I mean, it's a psychologizing, but I think that actually happened a lot. I, not that we everything that former people does is actually about that. I think a lot of what we're actually dealing with is we're trying to look at those questions that led a lot of modernists to flirt with extreme political things, but look at them honestly and through the lens of art itself. We don't write a lot about politics on the site. I think you will find if you were to look at what we have up, there's nothing on it except for the, the interview with Alfurus, and that's about anti-modernism and anti-communism. But most of what we do is more aesthetic. But what we're interested in is what was society producing that led to these questions? Why are in the 1970s did this all seem to stop? And what still hasn't been answered from that aesthetically and politically? How would you describe literary modernism? Well, I think literary modernism, I mean, it comes out of a, a very big shift in, in society in the late 19th century. Romanticism just doesn't seem as viable anymore as an aesthetic movement, because romanticism seems to be like a reaction to the early Industrial Revolution. But once the Industrial Revolution's finished, that, that's, people don't think they can get that world back. I think there's a real sense of that. And then, you know, you have basically a century of small-scale wars between emerging nationalist powers and, you know, and we're talking in the 19th, early 20th century, nationalist powers were like appearing and disappearing by the day. Bohemia and Prussia, anyone? You remember these things? So, you know, that wasn't actually all that long ago. I think that produced a real, um, you know, disease amongst people. They couldn't go back to romanticism. They couldn't really go back to religious points of views. They knew too much about science. They couldn't do it, you know, easily. And not to say they couldn't do it, but they couldn't do it easily. And so there was a real push to innovate, to bring in something new, because it seemed like, you know, the, the last century had gone away, and it didn't end well. And this beginning of the next century also hasn't really started off well. You know, it starts off with two more wars. 
And that really affects the mindset. And I think there's a similar thing that's going on parallelly in Asia because a lot of Asia arts really change, but Asia is going through a much different transition and it's going through it much faster. So it's, you don't really see the art really show up until maybe the 60s. You start seeing both the sort of anti-authoritarian art in the 60s and 70s in Japan and a little bit in Korea, although it's really kept down in Korea. In the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s in China is when that really sort of happens, and it happens you know, in the Anglo-European West. It happens not super gradually, but it does take place over the course of you know, four or five decades. In Asia, things jump years, like light years, from modes of production and in art and stuff, and in social structure in the course of two decades. So it's, it's a very different thing. It's much more accelerated. And was modernism affected much by, say, the scientific revolutions that were going on at the time from relativity and quantum theory and maybe even the work of Freud? I would say on the work of Freud, for sure, I actually don't think physics had as much effect on modernism. I think physics had kind of an effect on modernism in genre literature and science fiction and stuff, which is something that I actually kind of am interested in. But I don't think it had effect on like high literary modernism, no. There's a, a couple of exceptions. There was an author named George Oppen who was sort of, he was a communist, but he was also, and I believe he was Jewish, but he was also a friend with Ezra Pound. So, you know, you're, you're talking about a complicated character, Jewish communist who's friends with an anti-Semitic semi-fascist, who wrote a lot about physics. And this was in the 40s and 50s. But most of what people know from school and what you would have studied, even if you were a, you know, a, a, a literature major in the States or Britain, wouldn't include that stuff. Did modernism, did it fold itself back and affect the world of politics at all in any concrete way? Uh, you know, my thesis on that is modernism kind of folded itself back in the world of politics because it was reflected in popular culture about two decades after it happened in sort of literary culture. So a lot of you know, like Dada, early modernist concerns and early postmodern concerns, you see them in like punk and new wave. And then you see that in the political movements that kind of develop and, and move around that. Kind of when it was interesting, because while these people were movers and shakers in culture, they tended not to be in politics. Most of them were middle class and from, you know, kind of bourgeois perspective of that, they were people who were the sons of people who had made it in industry or maybe small sh shop owners who had enough money to educate their kids, or they were people from working class backgrounds who received educations after World War II from the government. And, you know, that big Keynesian largesse that happened then. And Keynesian largesse is in somewhat quotes. Th that's who we're talking about, those two generations of people. And they're very different, actually, even among themselves. Now, their concerns were very different, but they lived in the world of massive transition. And I, I, think, I think they were just responding to it. The, the, a lot of the artists who tried to get ahead of the game, they made really bad political decisions. I mean, you think about the futurists in that regard, right? You know, they line up with Mussolini. Or you think about some of the Russian avant-garde after the Bolsheviks and what Stalin does to them. You know, most of them are liquidated in terror. So, so what are your hopes then for the journal? My hope is to make a, a literary magazine that interested in social things, but not one that's really interested. In, like, there's a lot of literary magazines that are out there to be literature about activism or, or whatever. That's not really what I'm talking about. I, I want to create a site where, you know, 
you would go to read a poem and really enjoy it, but you would also go to like maybe think about some some social questions, you know, maybe even political questions, but from an aesthetic point of view and trying to to work it out in literature as opposed to just polemic our, our history. I'm not sure that I'm entirely successful at that. I mean, you know, you know, everybody that submits to us doesn't necessarily understand what our long-term goals are. But I, I do think these are the questions that sort of preoccupy us. You know, I shouldn't count my eggs before the hatch, but soon we should be releasing interviews on the differences between uh, Chilean South American modernism and Anglo-American modernism, and also one on the difference between Chinese modernism and Anglo-American modernism. You know, there's going to be lots of interviews there. There's also going to be lots of poetry and literature to look through. And uh, so you never get tired of reading socialist polemic or listening to depressing economic reports. You can go read a poem. A depressing poem. <laughs> Probably. I mean, you know, they're not necessarily the most uplifting of people. Uh, I, I tend to find my, I think I, I'm pretty jovial in person, but no, most of what I write is not necessarily happy. Demarcation poem. If we are uncritical, we shall always find what we want, what we shall look for and find confirmations. And we shall look away from and not see what might be dangerous to our pet theories. Sir Karl Popper, The Poverty of Historicism. So we can give you a problem. The New Year's rotting hairs released in a slurry of gray and brown. Navel-gazing doesn't tell you much about yourself except that your eyes can't peer past lint into viscera. If A is for Apollonian and D is for Dionysian, then Nietzsche botched the variables of the equation. If you are searching for answers, have breakfast first, or the truth won't tell. Nonsense, you say. The divination of hairs in the sink are the mapping of veins no more scientific than palmistry. If D is for death and L is for life, then the symbolism is too blatant. We're still struggling for meaning's lines to be clearer, to cut away the dead weight, which may be life itself. Have you any plans to make a print journal? Yes, actually we do, but uh, only in anthologies. Print journals are expensive and few people buy them now. Uh, base superstructure issue. But we, we, do, we do plan on making um, some print-on-demand journals. So if people want them, eventually we will make anthologies of what we consider the best stuff. And they'll be available probably for just a little bit above cost. And they'll be print-on-demand and, you know... We'll ship them to you. We're really interested right now, and I think as you can kind of hear, is trying to explore modernism outside of the whole like Anglo-North American context. 
and even outside of the French and Spanish context. I think people know that. I don't think people know about you know modernism and postmodernism in China. I don't think people know about modernism and postmodernism and the way it intersects with politics and the strange ways it intersects with politics in, say, Latin America. I don't think that's as well studied. You know, even in some of the countries we're talking about, I don't think it's as well studied. We're also, I think, we're going to be writing a lot about the relationship between literary science fiction and literary weird fiction and modernism as both aesthetic and a political movement. Like, you know, what did H.P. Lovecraft have to say about politics other than that black people were scary? I'm not as interested in that. Because his own political journey is actually interesting. He starts off as kind of a racist Republican and ends up a slightly less racist, but still pretty racist sort of socialist before he dies. That's interesting to me. Like, why did that happen? That's what I'll be looking at in the next issue plus whatever we get in terms of stories that I think are in that vein that explore those issues of transition and, you know, looking at the world, not necessarily like with no sense of humor, but seriously, you know, being able to look at things that are tragic and not being flippant or sarcastic or arch or necessarily even meta about it. And I, I, you know, we'll see. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, by Sunra and his orchestra, and Clint Mansell's The Last Man. You also heard La Partida, played on a Paraguayan harp, by Mark Harmer. And you are now listening to Enlightenment, by Sunra. I'd like to thank Derek for coming on the show again. Why not check out his journal? Derek you may find it stimulating. Derek plays us out with another reading from his writings. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. I will never call myself a poet, even though I write verse. Poet is, from the Greek, a maker. I do not make anything. When I sit at a press board desk and write for hours, be it with pencil or by the clicking of keys, I am not making. I am presenting what the world has already implanted in me and polishing it off. The language chooses me as much as I choose the language. A poet, then, is the pretense of originality. The world, however, is without self. A maker implies selfhood. This is against both my aesthetics and my religion. When I write about myself, I am not particularly concerned about my own selfhood, but rather my lack of it. As poet Lynn Emanuel once told a group of creative writing students over dinner of chicken parmesan, it took her a long time to come to terms with a linear narrative. She told us how she became engrossed with James Joyce and Gertrude Stein because of their abstracting of the traditional idea of dramatic narrative into explorations of consciousness and non-linear ideas. Emmanuel said that she was dealing with the death of her father. She was hit in the face with the fact that life's narrative is rather linear. 
She said that the body definitely has a beginning, a middle, a climax, and an end. And you have to deal with it. A few years ago, I stood over my maternal grandfather's bed. It smelled of stale urine and lye. As he raised his anthropy tanned, he started laughing for no discernible reason. He slurred some words that gave credit to what, what a few well-placed strokes can do to one's mind. As Chinua Achibe and the second law of thermodynamics like to remind us, things do fall apart. That's the shitty part of a narrative. It ends. Maybe our cultural fear of death that has led us away from linear narrative. Maybe it's any number of things. Hard to say. It is interesting, however, that the academic world has been distancing itself from the popular reader by trying to avoid traditional narrative and plot. Language-based literature is generally in vogue, and there's nothing wrong with that, as long as there is some discernible idea of narrative. Things fall apart, and as writers, it's our job to put them back together. Language can do that if it has a recognizable structure, something that people, including poets, often ignore. That's why I believe in narratives, and that narratives are something that every poet should employ. But all that said, I still don't think linearly.